you know, who's the problem here? And everybody wants to know, could there be this one missing ingredient that if we had it, something that was broken can become whole? And often we live, we live our lives sort of imagining that that's all we're missing. Even if, you, if we were to sort of zero in the argument, narrow the, argue, the, the discussion a little bit closer to home, instead of just talking about a country or a, f- a football team, but to say about our lives. How do we think about our lives? If we were to say, well, look, there's something uh, broken or there's something that's, that's come apart in my life or in, in, in this, my situations, and I were to ask you, well, what is it that, that you're missing? What is it that you need to do? Um, a, a, a couple months ago, our whole family got to spend some time in Disney World. And Sophia's sitting here in the front row, and she had a great time, and it was a wonderful time. I was speaking at a conference, and they um, offered to fly Holly out, and get, they gave us passes for our whole family to go, and so it just sort of seemed like the perfect occasion. Now, I, to be honest, wrestled with this whole Disney thing, because there was a part of me that thought, oh, this could be a nice sort of memory, but I knew that we were going to be inundated with these Disney theology, you know. You don't know that that's what it is, but that is what it is. In every song and parade, there is a theology that's being sort of poured into you. And it goes something like this. You can achieve any dream you want if you would just believe it in your heart, you know. And so faith doesn't become a faith in someone beyond yourself. Faith becomes a a belief in yourself. And so all of a sudden, this very deep idea of faith and belief becomes genericized and, 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 and watered down and diluted to become this just vanilla sort of thing of, look, if you have this dream inside your heart and believe it with that, you can have it. And look, Walt, this was his dream, you know. So you get it from the bus ride from the, air, to, from the airport all the way through. And obviously, we, we hear messages like that over and over again. When you, when you look up at a situation and you say, you know what, my life's a mess, or my family's a mess, or things are broken, or things aren't working, oftentimes the message we hear back is, well, just look within yourself. There's something within you that can bring you wholeness. Or maybe the other message that we hear all the time is the message that corporations pay spend millions and millions of dollars to tell us, which is, you are missing something, and we make it. (laughs) And really, if you would just look outside, around yourself, if you had that car, or that house, or that vacation, or that thing, then all that is broken will become whole again. If only I had an iPhone that would talk to me reschedule my appointments. And we have these messages that, that, that tell us, look, look, we know there's something not whole in you, and we, boy, have we got the product for you. This is not all that different from the situation in Jerusalem in Jesus' day because they understood that something was broken. Something was broken on a national level, and something was broken on a very real everyday level. These were the people of God. For goodness sake, they were supposed to be enjoying prosperity. They were supposed to be flourishing like we talked about last week. They were supposed to be experiencing God's blessings. Why on earth are they living under Roman rule? They'd returned from exile some 450 years ago. You would have thought by now, surely by now, 
things would have gotten better. Has anybody ever felt that way? Surely by now, wouldn't you think things would have started to get better? How come? And the question at the back, or maybe on the forefront, really, of every person's mind in Palestine at Jesus' day would have been something like, when will God finally do what he said he was going to do? How many times have we felt that? How many times have we been living and facing challenges and sort of said, God, hey, I thought by now things were going to turn. I thought surely by this day or by the... How come, God, when is it that you're going to fulfill your promises? When is it that you'll do what you said you were going to do? Well, in Jesus' day, there were several different groups of people who thought they knew the answer. Not unlike our political landscape or any nation's political landscape for that matter. Everybody's got a theory about how to fix this. So you had the people who said, you know what? I think if we cozy up to Rome and we get Rome to kind of work with us, we can make this happen. And look, we're kind of getting rich off of them. This is kind of working. This is a little arrangement here. If we can kind of snuggle up with the powers of the empire, maybe we can have our way. And maybe actually, maybe God will use that to bring blessing to our land. That's an interesting approach. We certainly can think of resonances of that today. And then there's another group that says quite the opposite. You know what? If we just would pick a fight with Rome, these were the zealots. These are the ones, you know what? If we could just pick a fight and get them to start really shedding blood and attacking us, then God will get ticked. And then God will say, whoa, whoa, bloodshed. No, no, no. Let's go. Then Yahweh will step on the scene and act. Then you have these other guys like the Pharisees who, who kind of thought, look, you know what? Maybe God's not acting because we haven't really obeyed good enough. And maybe if we didn't just keep the normal laws, maybe if we went beyond. In fact, a lot of what the Pharisees were doing is taking laws that applied to the Levites, one tribe, and imposing them on everyone. And sort of saying, look, Levitical laws of washing your hands, and it doesn't, that's not just for priests, that's now for everyone. That's why some of these guys get ticked at Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands. You think, wait, where's that? I don't remember reading it. Or, or some of the different pieces. It's all part of a theory that says, I got it. I know how we can get God to act. Jerusalem, in all the Gospels, really, is this culmination of Jesus' ministry. If you're a storyteller or a playwright or you're into kind of the dramatic uh, stuff, you could imagine that the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, if you were the movie scorer to this movie, the music would be getting a little more intense. Violins would be up high. Doo, 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 doo. You know, you'd be feeling this. Okay, okay, here we go. This is we're an hour and fifteen minutes into the movie. This is it. That's what Luke wants you to feel. The this is it sort of moment. Luke nineteen verse twenty eight. After Jesus said this, he continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As Jesus came to Bethphage and Bethany on the mountain uh, on the Mount of Olives, he gave two disciples a task. He said, "Go into." the village over there, and when you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If someone asks, why are you untying it? Just say, its master needs it. Those who had been sent found it exactly as he had said. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, hey, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, its master needs it. I, I, I wish they would have said something like, but we are 
its owners. And they brought it to Jesus and threw their clothes on the colt and lifted Jesus onto it. And as Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. This, of course, is a very deliberate Messiah act. Uh, We tend to think of Jesus riding on a donkey as, oh, isn't that nice? He sort of is doing something humble. Well, that's true. But he's most likely very familiar with these words from Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from, the, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus choosing to do this is a deliberate Messiah act. It's, it's almost politically charged. He's saying, look, I want them to remember these words. I want them, as they see me riding in, to to think, wait, that's the guy. That's the one. But wait a second. Righteous and victorious. Where's the battle? What battle? Isn't this the guy who's been teaching in Galilee? What's he coming down here for? Why is he riding in on a colt? Back to Luke. As Jesus approached the the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things they had seen. And they said, Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. What does this make you think of? The song of the angels, right? Glory to God in the highest. Here Luke is maybe bringing this theme up again. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. Now, as a worship leader for many, many, many years, I loved this little verse right here. And I probably had no idea what it, you know, I knew it was sort of with the triumphal entry, but I, man, I would use it, not all the time, it wasn't like every week, whatever, but I would would think it and sometimes it would work into like a teaching on worship, like, look, man, especially when I first started leading worship in high school, uh, because I, I didn't know a whole lot, and I just knew that I needed to get people to respond, doggone it. And uh, so as a young worship leader, uh, this was kind of my go-to verse. And, hey, look, if we don't praise, Jesus will make the rocks cry out, you know. And this sort of has become kind of like the Christian rock and roll anthem. You know, we're, you're the rock, rocks, rocks will cry out, rock and roll, you know, whatever. And, and, it, and, and it's become this clever thing associated a lot of times with worship. It's worship. This, this is about worship. We gotta, yeah. It is about worship. But it's actually much deeper than we think. In Habakkuk 2, verse 9 through 12, this is what the prophet says. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. Here it is. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Could it be that Jesus is saying to the, one, to the Pharisees, are saying, hey, Jesus, scold your disciples. Tell them to, to pipe down. And Jesus is saying, look, you don't get it. Cozying up with Rome is only conspiring with the oppression 
Collaborating with Rome is collaborating with oppression and injustice. And if my disciples don't cry out, Hosanna to a Savior, then even the stones of the city will cry out against this bloodshed. There's something deeper here that Jesus is saying. First, the act of saying, look, I'm riding in on this cult is meant to say to them, I'm the Messiah. But the second thing of saying the stones will cry out if they, if, if they be quiet is a way of saying you need saving. Something is terribly wrong here. A city built on bloodshed. A town established by injustice. Jesus wants them to know, look, they're right to cry out for me. They're right to say something's wrong. Something's not right. And if they don't, even the stones will. But the part of the text that we really want to look at tonight comes right after this. As Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. I think there are two moments that the gospel writers record Jesus weeping. John talks about Jesus weeping, you know, do you remember when? At Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. Here's Luke showing us Jesus. I mean, it's an odd scene if you think about it. If you could just sort of imagine this for a minute, put your Steven Spielberg hat on or whatever and imagine this, the scenes here, Ron Howard hat, you know. And you're riding, he's riding in, and it's a great, disciples are, wow, yes, Hosanna, he's the one, blessed is the one who comes. Obviously a messianic praise song, if you will. And then the Pharisees are scolding, hey, hey, tell them to be quiet. Jesus says, look, even if they don't, these stones will cry out. There's bloodshed here, there's injustice here. The very city will cry out against what's been happening here. What Rome has been doing, what you've been colluding with them to do, your part in this, it's all going to cry out, something is wrong and you need the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, he starts weeping. They were praising him. He's sort of the center of attention. Then they were scolding him. And, the, and now he's just, he's weeping. And he said, if only you knew on this of all days the things that lead to peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you and circle you and attack you from all sides. They will crush you completely. You and the people within you, they won't leave one stone on top of another within you because you didn't recognize the time of your gracious visit from God. If only you knew on this of all days the things that would lead to peace. That word. Jerusalem itself, of course, has the word shalom built into it. Yerushalayim. This idea of the city of God's peace. And there's a poetry in Jesus saying, And yet, if you only knew on this day of all days the thing that would really lead to peace peace, what would you have done? You wouldn't be telling the disciples to be quiet. You would join them in the cry. You would cry out with them. When I think of this passage, there's at least two things that I think 
for us, you know, as a, as a Sunday night congregation that, that kind of really stand out. And the first is this moving picture of Jesus the Savior weeping over a city. Weeping over it. Saying, if only you knew on this day of all days the things that lead to peace. Of course, the, this description that Luke gives is very particular in Luke. He's talking about the day in AD 70 when Jerusalem would be destroyed by, by, uh, by Rome and it would be overturned and all of this stuff. He knows what's coming. But if you only knew on this day of all days the things that lead to peace. If I were to ask you, what does it mean to weep over a city? What does weeping over our city uh, mean? Can we take this? Can we sort of see ourselves in the story and say, well, maybe that's knowing that Jesus is weeping even over this city. Well, God, Glenn, I mean, that's kind of a big stretch. I mean, Jerusalem sort of represents covenant and God's people, you know. But, but Colorado Springs or this city, any, can, can we really say that? That's the reason I chose the Old Testament reading that I did tonight. Because it's Jeremiah saying to these people right as they're about to go into exile, pray for the welfare, pray for the peace of the city that you're going to live in. Buy homes there. Let your sons and daughters marry. Plant vineyards. Pray for the peace of that city. Now think about how strange that must have sounded to a person who'd grown up their whole life praying for the peace of one city, the city of peace itself, Jerusalem. I'm not praying for the peace of Babylon. That's the devil's city. I'm praying for the peace of my city. This is my, you know, Jerusalem. Jeremiah, we knew you were crazy, but now it's like proof. You're telling us, as we're about to go into captivity, you're telling us to Get used to it and learn to live there and pray for the peace of that city? No way. I wonder if we could sort of put those two texts side by side and to say maybe the way that you and I live in an earthly city while we long for this eternal city, maybe it's a little bit like living in exile. And maybe there's a sense in which Jesus stands even over this city and weeps. And says, look, ultimately, he wishes the flourishing, the peace of all of it. What does it mean to be the people of God within a city? Does it mean that we sort of enjoy it and, you know, it's great, but hey, we're just, we're the church and we, I'm so glad that we have the freedoms we have and we just, we're just going to do this. Is that what this means, to sort of begin to draw lines and, and, and neighborhoods and circles and just say, well, this is it, this is great, this is my little place, instead of realizing what if we are the body of the Messiah actually in this city? Jesus the Messiah stands and weeps over his city. Could we, as the body of Christ the Messiah, stand within our city and weep over it? Do we? Are we moved by it? This morning I was in a little Bible study with a couple of the guys here, and we were reading from Philippians 3 and 4, and there's a part in it where Paul is talking about people whose God is their belly, which is such a funny phrase, you know. 
but, uh, but that they're on this road to destruction. And then Paul says, I'm weeping even now as I write this. How many times have we talked about people who are self-destructing with scorn? Oh, Virginia, look at those people. Man, my goodness. They're just, well, bad decisions. How many times do we talk about people who've refused life or whatever and, and, and are about to face destruction even here and now, and we talk about it with scorn? Well, you know, I mean, that's just the result of this and that, and that's just, you know, and serves them right, and they should have done this, and they shouldn't have done that. Instead, Jesus, Paul, all the saints have learned to stand within their cities and weep. To truly be moved by it. To say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are we here? Could it be that the Messiah rides into this city through us? Maybe we're the donkey here. I don't know. Body of Christ or donkey, whichever image works for you. Either way... Christ comes into this place, this city, through us, through the church. Why be here if, not, if that's not true? On Friday morning, um, I um, had the opportunity to go down to the Springs Rescue Mission, and um, uh, the guy, one of the guys who, who's their operations uh, officer there is a New Life guy, Russ Goslin. Many of you know him. He's kind of spearheaded the Knob Hill Project and a lot of the stuff that uh, New Life Local Ministries has continued on over the last couple of years. And, and so Russ said, hey, would you, would you come down and, uh, and lead a little worship and share a little Devo? And uh, he said, it's going to be about 40 of our guys who are in the drug and alcohol recovery program. It's actually called the New Life Program. <laughs> Isn't that great? And, um, and he said, there'll be some of our staff there as well. But would you come down there? And I had, actually, I had done something similar a year ago. And I said, sure. And uh, I, I, I pulled up, you know, in the parking lot. And it, it's, a, you know, it's in a part of town that is not usually in my normal drive. Let's just say that. Sadly. And I walked in, I pulled, pulled into the parking lot. I said, hey, Russ, where, what, what building are we in? Are we in the, you know. He says, no, actually, we're in this. A new building that uh, that just got donated to us, and we wa- I walk into it, um, and there's this it's this concrete building that's totally gutted out. I mean, there's nothing in it. They, there's um, there's some windows, but it's just you know cement floor, cement wall, you know concrete walls, and and uh, and they had a couple of space heaters, which I have to say weren't quite doing the job. And um, so so I walked in, and, and this portable sound system and. And immediately I felt like I came alive. Like I felt like, hey, hey, I used to do stuff, not like this exactly, but I, you know, it used to not matter about what the equipment was like or what the, you know, and Eric, you know this, we spent years traveling with the Desperation Band and th- that sort of changes the way you think about going to play, right? So I, when I was younger, when I was in high school, we used to, in, in Malaysia, we'd go do outreaches, we'd show up in a smaller church or we'd go into uh, a more rural part of the country, or we do, you know, and we do these little trips, and we just go in. It didn't matter. I'd have some beat up guitar and just play and sing. And someone would say, "Would you share a message?" One of my first, uh, uh, quote unquote, evangelistic sermons, I had to give in Malay. I don't speak Malay. 
uh, all that well. I did better at the time, you know, but it was so, sort of was brushing up. I wrote it out. I trans, you know, had some check the grammar and translate. And it was to the, a rural community in Malaysia. And I was having these flashback kind of moments as I stood there on Friday morning. Because here I was with my flight-approved guitar case that has been to much nicer venues, that has been on huge stages with big lights and arenas. And, and I got there, and the mic stand at the Springs Rescue Mission was drooping a little bit. You know, it's like, come on, guys. Didn't you read my tech writer, you know? You don't even know what a tech writer is, do you? That's what big shots send. Anyway, I stood there, and I'm leading with my coat on, and my fingers are freezing, and I'm thinking, this is awesome. This is awesome. And got done and took my Bible and walked through the, the chairs and sh- sh- shared a message without a mic, without, you know, whatever. And talked to several people afterwards with tears in their eyes saying, that's my story. You, you talked about Bartimaeus. That's me. Yeah, that's, that's my story. I was this beggar that Jesus rescued. What does it take to bring us to the place again where we can stand over a city and weep? What does it take to make us see like Jesus sees? One of the real practical things we can do this winter is this. This is a little grocery bag, but it says Springs Rescue Mission on it. Our local ministries here is like so many other ministries are doing, schools or whatever, collecting non-perishable items. Out in the lobby, there's a sheet of paper. It's got a list of stuff. This, it, the reason it's a grocery bag is so next time you're grocery shopping, you can put stuff in it and, and think, oh yeah, I should pick up a, a couple extra cans of stuff for these guys. And then we've got a basket here. You can drop it off. And that, that's, you know, that's, that's easy. That's simple. That's practical. But there's something more to this story than just weeping over the city. It's really about welcoming the king. It's really about welcoming the king. That Jesus is here and he's saying, if you knew on this day of all days the things that lead to your wholeness, your flourishing, your shalom, your peace, if you only knew, but they're hidden from your eyes. To understand what happened that day, to understand why the gospel writers make it the point to tell their stories, to reach this climactic moment of Jesus comes to Jerusalem and then he's crucified and then he's buried and then he rises again. Why is that so epic? Because it's the defining moment of all of history. It's kind of like what one theologian has described as like the black hole of time. It sort of pulls everything else, past, present, and future, into it so that it itself becomes the central changing event of history. That's amazing. That's amazing. And to understand that Jesus has come. The King has come. That He's ridden in, that He came, that He died like we confess, and was buried and rose again, that He'll come again. There's something about this that should make us as the people of the Messiah stand up and say, yes! Yes, yes, yes. No, he's come. Can we be the ones who welcome him? Or are we, in some ways, 
like the good religious people even in Jerusalem who, like, no, I, I, hey, that's cool. Jesus, yeah, he died. And, uh, that's great. But, you know, we've sort of got our ways worked out here of how to bring wholeness in our lives. And we've got a plan here for how to fix things. And we'll, we'll fix society. We'll fix stuff. We'll put it all back together again. In some ways, I think we are meant to see Jesus throughout the Gospels as reliving Israel's story. He goes through the wilderness temptations like Israel went through wilderness temptations, all this stuff. And you can't help but wonder if when Jesus is saying, Jerusalem, there's going to be a day where you'll be surrounded on all sides and completely crushed. You can't help but think if he knows actually that's going to be me. That I will be pierced on my sides. Echoing the words of Isaiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Think of that phrase there that Jesus says about Jerusalem. He says, They will crush you completely. But he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what's the word? Peace. If only on this day of all days you would have known the things that lead to peace. It's a very simple message. Jesus is the Messiah the only one who can put it all back together again. The only one who brings wholeness. The idea of shalom, the idea of peace, and Dr. Todd, you were teaching on this last week at Sunday School, is so much bigger than just the absence of war, the absence of conflict. It's wholeness. Someone said recently it's the picture of comprehensive flourishing. I like, I like that comprehensive flourishing, that everything put back and, and living again. And it makes me think of the song that we sing, maybe the song that we've sung since we were kids. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus What can wash away my sin Nothing but the blood of Jesus What can make me whole again Nothing but the blood of Jesus, oh, precious.
is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountains I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Would you stand with, with me tonight? As you bow your heads and get ready to pray, maybe we start by remembering that we too are like a city in ruins. But that because Jesus came and was crushed and pierced and bruised, that we can be made whole. Maybe then we go from that place to saying how Jesus teach me to weep over the city. Teach me to be like the disciples who cry out, this is the one, blessed is the one, this is the one, this is him. This is the king. This is the one who came. This is the one who died. This is the one who brings flourishing and wholeness and peace. God, make us a people whose very lives cry out that you are the one. Make us a people whose very lives and actions speak of you, point to you, welcome you, And whether we're the donkey that you ride in on or whether we're the disciples who are crying out or whether we're the body of the Messiah himself in our city weeping, make us the carriers of this hope, the people who speak of Jesus all the time, everywhere. Because we know the wholeness that's begun in us. Because we know the peace that's begun in us because we know the flourishing that is taking place in our own hearts. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I'm at the back here because I'm going to be at one of the doors. (laughs) Have a great night. We'll see you next week.